Hi Cult Hackers, I'm Stephen Mather, organisational psychologist and one of your hosts. In this podcast we try to get into the detail of how cults work by listening to the experiences of ex-members as well as talking to academics, researchers and activists. So coming up is an interview with Joy Cranham, who works with the Family Survival Trust and was raised in the Exclusive Brethren. And this is a group that we've not really spoken about on this podcast. So I asked Joy about the group and her experience of being raised as a member and, of course, of leaving. I was also keen to talk to Joy because she works with the Family Survival Trust, the charity that supports leavers and the families of those impacted by cults when their family members become involved with them. And it also happens to be the charity that I'm raising money for this year through my Length of Britain cycle ride that I'm training for in September, the Land's End to John O'Groats. So Joy talks a little bit about the aims of the charity, how they help people, what it's for and how they do their work. If you'd like to help me raise money for the charity, you can sponsor my ride at my Just Giving page and a link is in the show notes. Okay, finally, before we speak to Joy, I wanted to let you know that we at Cult Hackers and a few other indie podcasts that focus on cultic groups have got together and are cross-promoting each other's shows over the next few weeks and months. So listen out for the special promo in today's episode. Okay, without any further discussion then, let's get on to our interview with Joy Cranham from the Family Survival Trust. Joy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve, and thank you for your efforts. Good luck with your cycle ride. (laughs) Um, And and also thanks for the opportunity to expose the Family Survival Trust and what it does and to raise its profile. Brilliant. Now, we're really pleased to do that. Uh, I think I mentioned in my original email to you that we've interviewed uh, Dr. Alexandra Stein on the show I'm very interested in her work and mm. um, her her most recent book is particularly interesting to me. Um, and so when I realised that, that this was an organisation that Alexandra Stein was involved in, I, I thought that sounds like a really good organisation to raise money for. So, yeah, it's great to, to have you on to talk about it. Uh, Joy, obviously you're um, working in this charity or you're doing a lot of good work why why this charity tell me why you wanted to work and help in this area um it it wasn't an easy process really to get to working for the family survival trust and in fact i had met dr alexander stein several times beforehand and she said you know come and do work with us and i would be like no i've been injured in group work i'm not going to go anywhere near that um, but the, it became really quite apparent in my life uh, that I had to start becoming um, anti-cultic in a very proactive way. I struggled to call myself an activist, but to be raise awareness of cultic harm and cultic um, behaviours and to implement in my own daily life anti-cultic um, ways of being, if I can. Um, and all of that has stemmed from, I was born and raised in the Plymouth Exclusive Brethren, which is now known as the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. I think it was rebranded about 20 years ago. 
But um, and at the age of 17, I, I left that organization and being young and hopeful, I, I just thought I could box up all those adverse experiences and leave them aside and get on with trying to create a good life. Um, primarily, I've been quite successful at that, in creating a good life. But mm. I certainly haven't been successful in creating up the murder that went along with being raised in a high demand group. And also the challenges and injuries in, in leaving a high demand group. Um, so I tried to get on with my life, and I did. You know, I, I did lots of things that people would look at the outside of my life and go, oh, yeah, Joy's doing all right, she's being successful. But, you know, the, the effects of, of trauma, the effects of the immense psychological abuse that occurs in high demand groups means that in very unexpected ways, it re, they reemerge and become present again in your life. And um, the situation emerged in my life about well, in 2014, and it just became absolutely apparent that I had to deal with this, um, these experiences and take my knowledge and my awareness of them and do something with them. And so I am now working with the Family Survival Trust. That seems to be a, it's, it's a, an organization that enables me to increase awareness around cults, to be supportive of people who are at different stages of their recovery, of leaving cults and, um, you know, the, the actual charity, I think, is interesting in the fact that it is diverse. It was established in the 1970s as a support group for families who young people had left and gone, you know, Southeast Asia or the Far East or had gone abroad, basically, and had joined uh, cultic organisations, as was, you know, advocated pretty much by the Beatles and other populist groups at that time. But what that really meant for these families was that all of a sudden their relationships were absolutely raptured and they were broken into pieces. And the parents had no understanding of what was happening to their relationship um, with their child who, you know, they were in relationship with and now all of a sudden it's, it's been shattered. Um, and so they got together and tried to offer each other support and understanding and in that then invited former members in to explain their experiences. And so the charity kind of grew out of that space where we now have representations for families of still, so the parents and, and siblings of people who are in cults are still represented. We have people like myself who were born and raised, and then we have people who were recruited as adults and then left. And so that real diversity of experience, I think, adds an element of um, help or scaffold in understanding the mechanisms. I think another aspect of the Family Survival Trust that's quite unique is that we're not denominated or ideologically specific so we mm. see cults as being organizations that use coercive control yeah. and manipulation to um, advance the leaders or the group's um, prosperity at the expense yeah. of the members and 
that means anything from you know business self-improvement kind of cults to religious cults to political cults to therapeutic cults to any kind of relationship where there is a discrepancy of power that can be exploited well it has the potential to become mm. a cult yeah. um and so it can be a and that that diversity enables us to really within the group to get a, a grounding into the similarities um that enable these groups to do what they do and mm. the ideology really isn't important it's the um, mechanisms of control yeah it's something that we found really interesting since doing this podcast um how you know we've talked to many different people from many different groups and yes you can see those mechanisms um working over and over again in the same ways um some groups are frighteningly similar to my own group the group i grew up in which was jehovah's witnesses um so actually it's quite um i i didn't realize you were born into the um uh, plymouth brethren as we we would call it um because we knocked on the doors of plymouth brethren from time to time and we always we always feared that somehow they were always very aggressive and difficult uh when we knocked on their doors um and you'd know the houses where they they lived it was kind of Oh, that, that's on that corner there. They're Plymouth Brethren, um, but we we all, like like the irony is that all cults do this. They always look at other cults and go, "They're so weird," you know. <laughs> yeah. So glad I'm not one of them. Oh no, yeah, absolutely. In a shame. Uh, yeah, this is the the strange irony that obviously you only see when you when you leave. Um, we haven't actually spoken to anybody from the exclusive or Plymouth Brethren before, so um, can I ask you a couple of questions about that? Is that something that yeah, you sure. want to talk about? Um, obviously, we want to get to the Family Survival Trust more, but um, yeah. yeah, so um, the, the the Plymouth Brethren seem to have a very extreme view of um, anybody that's not uh, Plymouth Brethren. So uh, as Jehovah's Witnesses, we would also have you know a view of, of being not involving ourselves in the world and um trying to avoid friendships and relationships in the world uh but we did have tv and we did watch movies and listen to music and things like that i understand um, we understood that plymouth brethren didn't do that at all they, they were much more separated is that is that right yeah yeah the the um <clears throat> doctrine of separation started in the 1970s under um, one of the leaders, James Taylor, Taylor Jr. And it was a real schism in the Plymouth Brethren at the time of, of which the exclusives kind of emerged. Um, certainly the fantastic book in the Days of Rain by Rebecca Stoke goes into the history of the Plymouth okay. Brethren in, in a lot better detail than, than I can probably capture in this short yeah. space of time. Um, but they, yeah, they, they believe in absolute separation, which is, you know, on, on a philosophical level is, is, a, is a doctorate really, isn't it? How can something that's meant to be Christian-based mm. believe in separation? But there you go. Um, it's, so within that separation, then, they are incredibly closed. You know, the, the clues in the title, exclusive. But um, in that closeness, they are, they don't actively recruit 
other members. They are a, a breeding cult in, in want of a better term. It is through reproduction that, in fact, their numbers stay it's not that um, conversions don't happen or recruitment doesn't happen. It does happen, but it happens very rarely. Mm. Part of my own personal experience is both of my parents were recruited. So I personally have, you know, and my family growing up in the Brethren had incredibly low social capital, for want of a better term, mm. because it, historically most people would trace their families back multiple generations, you know, right. yeah, and to, to kind of get a, a sense of cultural... Um, leverage your status mm. um, and we had nothing <laughs> so in a hierarchical structure such as the the brethren as most cults are they're very hierarchical mm. we were right at the bottom of the pile hoping someone would inadvertently kick us in <laughs> closer um, but saying that you know I, I'm one of six children and only two of us have managed to leave so right. you know there, there's something about that adversity that you know, it, it didn't affect my siblings in the same way. Mm. Um, yeah, so there's, there's separation. So that means that the brethren's homes were probably identifiable to you when you were knocking. They would have all been detached. They can't be yes. linked to another house. They right. have to be a standalone property. Something about sh sharing sewage pipes is, is, oh, is wow. it leaves you vulnerable to evilness. <laughs> Oh, wow. or, or sharing a partitioned wall or something right. it, it's it's that close so that kind of sharing is is not appropriate um it, you know and then there was all that thing of you you weren't allowed to watch tally or the radio yeah. um certainly when i was a member and that we're going back to the late 80s you know computers were just coming out and they were seen as being a another tool huh. of uh, that should be avoided but, you know, commerce is important and commerce happens on the computer. So somehow yes. now through a very big uh, firewall, the Plymouth Brethren can, can control oh, computer systems. Hmm. And they are all controlled by the one organization owned, surprisingly, by the leader and his family that the, the you know, the international community can connect on the Internet now. Um, but as I say, it, to you do that legitimately, it's through immense firewall. Hmm. It sounds like growing up in that environment would have been, well, obviously very isolating by definition, but very difficult to kind of make sense of the world. Um, what, what's the, the Jehovah's Witnesses have this belief in the end of the world that the that Armageddon is coming. And so that was always a, a cloud sort of, well, depending on how you thought about it, it was either a cloud or, you know, because after that comes the, the new order with everybody living forever playing with pandas, you know. So um, we kind of look forward to that bit. But um, what was the, the, the main doctrine for yeah, for you guys? Very similar. Um, ah, okay. And, you know, for myself growing up, I, I feel fortunate in the fact that I was at the age when the brethren didn't have their own schools. They now have their own schools and going to school was such a highlight. It, it was such a, it was a mixed, I, in fact, it placed me in a dichotomy. I loved going to school. I experienced so much freedom. I didn't experience friendships. I wasn't allowed to have friendships, but I could be with other people and just be me, so to speak. Mm. I loved learning. I loved reading. Reading was illegal in the, in the Brethren's doctrine. Wow. Um, and so all those kind of things like reading and enjoying the company of others, 
would all sit really um, uncomfortably on the doctrine. And within the doctrine, the breaking of, of those rules meant eternal damnation. And so I was, from a very young age, absolutely petrified of dying. If the pandas weren't my option. I was going to the other place. And there was nothing I could do to avoid that. I, I was unable to be good enough to avoid that outcome. And that is, is you know, that's incredibly difficult and, and how abhorrent, hmm. how immensely wrong is it for a young child to be so afraid of just being alive for the hmm. fact that they would one day die and then end up in eternal hell. That is just such an abomination hmm. of child abuse. It, you hmm. know, it, it's beyond death's not even going to stop that torturous yeah. thought. And in fact, it will become real at that point. I mean, there's something really um, uncomfortable in the fact that our society still allows that to be a reality of thousands of children right now, today, could be suffering from that terror. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, school was great. I loved it. But it produced these spaces where, in fact, I terrified myself. But I eventually got to the point where I had to do the sums and it was like I can live a life and go to hell. That was kind of the the, 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 the equation the, the, or the continuum. Mm -hmm. What I did in the middle was my choice. So I could live my life, try and be a really good Plymouth exclusive brethren sister, die and go to hell. Or I could live my life Yourself. Not be a really good human exclusive preference, <laughs> sister, but be someone who tries to just have a good life, do things, live, read, laugh, love, cry, do, be alive, and then die. And well, actually, when I made the choice, I thought I'd still go into hell. I'm now happy to say that I don't imagine that's going to be my destiny. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. And not yeah. because I've been saved either. But because no. I just don't believe it is now just going know to be it's my nonsense. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So leaving that must have been um, very difficult. I mean, I have to say, Joy, that your experience, although it's a different religion, it reminds me so much of my own. It, it really, it kind of hit me right there when you were saying that because I did the same. Really, I left and uh, just got on with my life, tried to leave it all behind, um, and it really is only in the last sort of five years, really, that I've started to talk about it and certainly talk publicly about it um so yeah um very i uh, recognize a lot of that but making sense of life after you've been in such a cosseted um unpleasant environment but still everything is provided for you in terms of your philosophy of life and your understanding of what you think is right and wrong your beliefs and everything that's all all swept away isn't it as you leave um, what was that like, that experience of making sense oh, of life afterwards? Terrifying. <laughs> terrifying and often quite messy at times, I must say. <laughs> you know, what? how do you define boundaries when you're a 17-year-old who has had no constructive input into understanding how to construct boundaries? Yeah. Um, so, in fact, it was terrifying. And terrifying because I had no idea how or what I was doing. Um, it was so difficult to articulate part of what I was experiencing. You'd say, no, I, 
I've just left a religious organisation. Oh yeah, I used to be a Catholic. No, it's not like that. (laughs) Oh, to have been a Catholic. (laughs) And I I say that in jest because there are, you know, there are certainly some people who have been terrified by being Catholics as well. Sure. But, um, you know, it was really difficult to find a space where that could be understood. And and it, it that took a long time to um, find those boundaries, to understand that I actually needed those boundaries. Um, and so in some respects, I find or feel I'm incredibly fortunate to be here because it could have gone really bad really early on and it and it didn't um and so i feel very lucky where that's concerned um i was able to find employment quite quickly i got got myself established you know and, and i think i did have an advantage over the fact that i was 17 there's something about being when you know your whole body is kind of chemically driving you to be rebellious to you know be wanting to define yourself that was an advantage and i and i think often of of people and there there would be these in the jehovah's witness too you know individuals who get uh, excommunicated or withdrawn from at a later stage of their life when they are established already that has got to be brutal especially if you don't want to be you know, so that there's, and that's the other thing about cults. Are there are so many ways to leave, and some of it is with autonomy, and some of it's not. Some of it's just a brutal, a brutal expulsion. Um, and I, I think to be an established adult in a group like that, and then all of a sudden find that you are being removed from that organisation for something, is, has got to be really, really tough. Um, yeah. So I don't think, you know, I, I, I think I was fortunate. I don't think I should have experienced what I've experienced. And, I, you know, I advocate the fact that policymakers need to be a lot more aware of cultic organisations and how they work and where, you know, the coercive control laws, you know, part of what the Family Survival Trust is advocating now is that the coercive control laws, which are about domestic one-on-one relationships, actually get expanded to include groups and organizations because they use the same mechanisms they are as violent against the person absolutely i think that's one of the um uh, certainly one of my passions is to uh is is for organizations that practice things like shunning and um uh well disfellowshipping it's called in jehovah's Mm -hmm. witnesses but effectively it is shunning um and sometimes quite young young people as well, um, very vulnerable people. Those sorts of things need to be really um, publicised, and people need to understand that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and at very least, charitable status needs to be withdrawn from from groups yeah. who do this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested, obviously, in your views on that, um, and particularly around. I, I think one of the things in liberal democracies that um, makes our lives difficult is is the fear of persecuting minorities or, or um, you know not supporting minorities. Um, we live in a a, a diverse c- community and we we value the right to religious freedom and all of those things. 
And I feel like Colts high control groups clearly use that, leverage that. Um, and it, it seems to be that they can get away with all sorts of things. Um, and then as soon as you start to challenge that, they, they claim persecution. You know, this is this is what happens. How do we um, how do we combat that? How do we get through to um, society? What what we're actually trying to say here? I, I totally agree with you, and I think it's really interesting that it is so difficult to hold these conversations for the fear yeah. of marginalising a group that is choosing to be marginalised. But I think it's worth the government's efforts to understand this. If the government's serious about levelling up and creating community cohesion, then we have to understand the marginalising groups in our communities that are choosing to not um, engage with the community. Um, I think one of the easiest ways that I try to articulate the difference between, because, sorry, I totally agree with you about freedom of thought, freedom of religion, they, they go hand in hand. You know, people have the right to believe that there are fairies in the bottom of the garden. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, to, to remove that right to hold that thought is to actually be coercive or to be, you know, you're oppressing someone's freedom to think, which is, you know, to be anti-cultic, we would resist doing that. So we need to actually defend the right for that to be. But I think what we can't defend is an assumption that everyone should believe a particular belief. And if they don't believe that, then they can be shunned or they should be treated as something other um, they should be removed from they should you know they that and those processes of removal those processes of separation are done with such brutality because it's not it, it's not just a, a demarcation of you go over there you stay here it's an attack on the person it's an attack on their very being and on their freedom to think um, so one of the simplest ways I try to use to illustrate what that means is if I was attending my local C of E church and the priest or even just another member of the uh, congregation said something, did something, made me feel uncomfortable, I could go to the neighbouring C of E church and everyone in that original congregation would still speak to me Everyone in the new congregation would still speak to me. I'd bump into them in Tesco's and would have a chat. You know, it's there is no ramification on leaving. That's a church. Yeah. And and that's how a church works. Where our experience is, we said, no, actually, I can't do this. My, you know, it, it is actually driving me mad. My, you know, in my hell equation was, and possibly end up going insane, mm. or and, and losing my mind, losing my ability to be. Or, or how? I think an, an important demarcation is is the mandated nature of these uh, practices. So I think um, I think this is where people get a bit mixed up because they think, well, you know, people fall out all the time. You know, uh, my brother doesn't talk to me anymore. My my dad stopped speaking to me twelve years ago. You know, because I, I changed my football team allegiance. You know, you, you get all these sorts of family um, upsets and and problems and that's that unfortunately that is that is life so we're not saying that uh, the government should step in and stop anything like that happening but what the difference is here 
is when groups, cults, organizations mandate that yeah. everybody in that congregation, everybody in that that group now also has to stop talking to you or have any association with you because of a set of things that you may have done, which could, for Jehovah's Witnesses can include, um, you know, um, sleeping with somebody, but can also include smoking a cigarette. You know, it's, it's as silly as that really. So I think that for me, that's one of the things we need to get across um, to to the authorities, to to people who who don't quite understand, is that we're talking here about mandated shunning. This is where the congregation says this person has been shunned. Nobody now can speak to that person anywhere in the world, essentially, um, and that's that's the problem. Yeah, that 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 sense of everyone must adhere to this rule, and if yeah. they don't then they will end up experiencing the same thing. That's right. The punishment will be the same for those that don't adhere to it. Yeah. And that that's one of the interesting flip sides or aspects of shunning is that the congregation are encouraged to shun. And with inside that, they are doing several very deep psychological things. One is affirming their allegiance to the doctrine and to the organization. Absolutely. They are in, in the act of shunning, and, and the brethren didn't shun, but they, they certainly didn't speak to anyone. You'd cross the side of the road. They right. just didn't have that word to describe that behavior. Okay. Right. Um, it, it, there was an absolute a rush, an, an embodied, vitriol experience of, I am so holy now. Yes. Look what I've just done to that person. Yeah. And that, that kind of spiritual... Uh, vindication of, of your abuse of this person is it, it, quite, it, I don't know, it, it's powerful. Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high demand groups, captive organisations and more. Each week I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. So we're talking uh, today to Joy Cranham, who is a facilitator and administrator uh, at the Family Survival Trust. Um Joy, we've, we've talked a little bit about your background and obviously why you're interested in this subject. I think it would be useful to, especially for those of our listeners that might be listening for the first time, to just really look at what cults are and why they're so important. You know, why is the, why, why are organisations like the Family Survival Trust so important? What, what are cults and why do we care about them? Well, I mean, not to contradict you, I don't think cults... Cults are important and they are significant, but we... I don't want to put them on a, on a status of, of eliteness. That's kind of what they endeavour to do. Mm. Um, 
cults are closed organizations that operate with inside our society in lots of different guises and sizes and shapes. So we have you know, really large international organizations or we have very small um, localized organizations. Um, but primarily they will have a similar kind of structure where there will be a charismatic leader who has managed to, through some form of indoctrination, but through the manipulations and coercive uh, control, will draw people in um, to then be manipulated by them. And I know that that sounds trivial and people will go, oh, why don't you just leave them when you become armed? And I think what's lost in that kind of um, approach to these organizations is that leaving is incredibly difficult because cults are established around the individual who has been recruited being ground uh, down having all the aspects and attributes that they would identify as themselves slowly being peeled away so that they become these hollowed versions of themselves that are totally dependent on the cultic leader. Um, and how that manipulation or that um, erosion of the self occurs is through, you know, systemic, abusive, intentional harms being visited on them in different ways it's you know it's not uncommon we, we hear stories of immense physical abuse sexual abuse inside cults but in fact in many respects the insidiousness and the ability for those abuses to occur is because already within inside that space is immense coercive control where the leader has that amount of power and i think that's why they're so dangerous because it leaves individuals unable to function and think independently for themselves yeah that's that's very interesting way of describing them yeah i was um looking at um social media today and i noticed some posts in um i suppose in opposition to uh, I guess people like us, really, who try to highlight the dangers of of cults and so on. And um, you know, they're talking about uh, taking personal responsibility and so on. And I think it's easy for people who haven't experienced what it's like to be in a cult to take that view, um, because obviously they don't know what it's like. But um, I'd like your your sort of take on this. But you know, from my point of view, it's um, under normal circumstances of course you would you would say well let's just leave this organization let's just move from this but there is as you said systematic um strategies to reduce the amount of power that you have to make those choices to make those decisions so it really is about power and the abuse of that power and the way that these organizations create that uh, that that situation so yeah i think it's um and somehow we need to get that across to people, don't we? That That's the hard bit, I think, sometimes. I think it does come down to education. Of course, individual yeah. responsibility ha has a role. And, and in yeah. fact, that's why cults are so dangerous, because in fact, their very essence is they are non-democratic. 
and with inside a democratic society that has a reluctance to identify that these groups exist and are harmful, yeah. we are disempowering our own democratic state. Um, and I think part of that education is about people, certainly for people who are recruited. I mean, one of the things that we've already touched on and that is really important to hold in mind is that some people are recruited into cults. Some people are born and raised in cults. And some people are damaged by cults simply because their loved ones have been recruited into them. And so, the, you know, the damage that, that cults um, inflict is multiple. And, and yet it ripples out through so many. Um, but what I wanted to say is, you know, that notion of independence, that comes down also to being aware. If people who are being recruited into cults know, have been taught, have somewhere in their backs of their minds, this understanding that if I am finding myself too terrified to actually say, actually, I want to get out of here, then I probably really need to get out of here. That, that I am probably in a really dangerous situation around coercive control, around is this a cult or am I just, or am I with a coercively controlling individual? So I think if we explicitly start discussing what coercive control is and how coercive control can happen in more than just a domestic context, we might start alerting people to the fact that they are in these dangerous situations and maybe enable and empower them to make different choices okay that's that's great so let's let's make a um not a start because we've been doing it for a long time but let's uh, let's continue with that by asking um let's see if we can paint the picture of what it's like for an individual to be in a cult let's try to understand for those who've never been or experienced that i know many of our listeners will have but for those who haven't what's it like why um a day in the life is too simplistic but what is it like to be in a cult what, what would you say to that it is too simplistic and you know cults aren't homogenous organizations either you know they 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 have many fronts many um entrepreneurial strings to them they they are in quite complex in some um ways but often what you know i think it's it's to try and approach it from an emotional perspective um, and, a, and a lifestyle choice. Within most cults, the individual affected by them has no control over their own life. They, what they wear, what they eat, when they sleep, when they have sex, who they have sex with, who they might be married to, where they work, how long they have to work, how often they have to worship, what they're allowed to do in their leisure time, if they're allowed leisure time, when they bathe, you know, just every aspect of their life uh, can be controlled and often is controlled within the uh, doctrine or the expectations of the leader. The terrifying thing also is that they can change on a whim. And so where you have this individual who is controlling all these aspects of your life and you're trying to appease them, you're trying to be the good follower, if the rules change inadvertently, 
you are left in a place where you are then endangered again. And I think it's that degree of fear of making a mistake that is so um, intoxicating in, in that space because you can make a mistake by simply doing something very naturally, even with inside those bounds that can be dangerous. So every aspect of your life is controlled, but you're also incredibly fearful that everything that you do could actually be judged and seen as inadequate or a way that once again your sense of self could be eroded and 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 diminished. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I mean, it, it reminds us a bit of bullying in a way, doesn't it? You know, um, and I think a lot of cults are essentially bullies, um, amongst other things. But um, this, this feeling of not being quite sure where you stand, you know, are they my friend today? Are they not my friend today? You know, Alexandra Stein obviously talks about this in terms of psychology and um, uh, attachment uh, theory. And that's, I think that's really fascinating. This, um, you know, I, I love them, but I'm f- afraid of them at the same time. And this creates this, uh, this horrible feeling of uneasiness and unsureness. And uh, so I think that's, that's, you said you've talked about control you've talked about power you've talked about fear these are the recipes i would say for for a controlling cult um i'm going to ask this question i mean i i have a obviously i'm very clear in my own mind but some people who maybe are members of religious groups that don't identify themselves as cults i mean who does I've never met anybody yet that thinks they're in a cult, but um, a lot of people will say, well, you know, my group doesn't, um, I can wear what I like and, and I can, I don't, I don't get told when I can bath and um, when I, you know, who I need to marry. So um, how would you, how would you sort of talk to those people? I mean, you know, obviously um, people have the right to have beliefs. How do we, how do we work that out, Joy? I think that's a really great question, Steve, and, and it alludes to one point that we need to kind of keep coming back to, and that is that cults aren't just religious organisations. They sure. can have many fronts, um, uh, you know, therapeutic business, self-improvement, coaching, mm. all, all sorts of elements mm. that, that can be. Um, but for individuals who don't feel their daily life is being um, oppressed, by a cultic organization, though people are maybe accusing them of that. I would question, what are the things that you would like to do that you're afraid to do? Are there any of those things that might be present? And if they are, what is inhibiting you from doing those things? You know, is it state law? Because in fact, you actually can't go and, you know, berate someone who might be irritating you. Or is it in fact some kind of, um, situation that's attributed to the group that you're in. You know, are there spaces where you would like to be something that you're not allowed to be? Um, mm, that's a so great question. it mightn't be as simplistic as your diet or of, you know, how you go about your daily life. It, it, it could be more slightly insidious than that, mm, or yeah. less tangible than that. And, and of course, cults, um, I don't know whether you agree with me, Joy, but I, I think that cults exist on a spectrum. So there are some yes. cults that are much more controlling than others. So that means that some cults will be less controlling 
um, than others. That doesn't mean that they they don't use the same techniques, perhaps mm. just not to the same degree as mm. others. And that, that does make it difficult to be able to differentiate sometimes, doesn't it? Well, I, I don't think the continuum is, is just one dimensional. I think there's two dimensions. So there's, mm. yes, that spectrum between really rigid and, and really um, slightly less rigid. But there's also this, the hierarchical structure. And so cults might have a, you know, come and talk to us front, where behind that there are other layers and, and more right. deeper spaces where, in fact, the control becomes more and more. So it might start off as a coffee morning, but could end up as a, right. you know, something a lot more controlling as you get deeper and deeper into the organisation. Um, and that's, that's part of the cultic control is identifying which people they would like to draw in deeper you know if they are it's like a an mlm isn't it you know it's yeah how do you build it up and those early early interactions are kind of a filtering mechanism i think aren't they so you know you can get rid of the awkward ones these annoying people who have uh, who are keep asking you questions that you can't answer Mm -hmm. um and and it, it means that um yeah the the early exchanges with some of these groups might be might feel quite benign i mean famously scientology starts mm-hmm. with or often starts with a, a personality test you know and who yeah. doesn't like doing those you know but um yeah, uh, yeah gradually there's a there's an, an increase in commitment and so on which mm-hmm. yeah it, as you say isn't just religious that that we see in all sorts of um uh, yeah. domains um obviously there's um over the years cults have uh developed uh, i mean there's been some particular um I, I think cults come in waves i'm interested in your thought i've just had been having this thought about how cults seem to come in waves so in the 1800s there was a lot of talk about you know when when is christ coming again when's his next um, kingdom return uh, and from that you get a you get a, a a few cults that survive who are waiting for Armageddon when Jesus is going to come back and so on. And then in the 70s, you get the the sort of hippie cults who are feeding upon the ideas of free love and, and so on and commune, living in communes and so on. Um, and it feels like perhaps now we're having internet cults and uh, sort of these sorts of conspiracy theories developing these different systems. But each time we get people moving into these spaces and then, of course, if they hang around long enough then you end up with children born and grandchildren born to these groups. So could you talk a little bit about the experience of, of children who are born into these groups and what it's like to be a child who knows nothing else? Well, it makes the experience totally different, and I, I'm slightly reluctant to do that, though I have the lived experience of that myself, because once again, children and childhoods aren't homogenous, and children and mm. childhoods and cults aren't homogenous Absolutely. either. So I'm speaking, you know, purely for myself. I think because of the hierarchical power structures with inside cults, family is often intentionally, in, intensely skewed and becomes um, the, the normal kind of uh, relationship you would have as a parent-child within that um, space is altered because, in fact, uh, one's parents are also trying to make sense 
of where they are in the cult and trying to make sure that they are doing what's right according to those laws. Um, it's incredible. I mean, I, I am who I am and I... I often wonder, you know, well, I, it's it's a silly question, how who I would have been if I wasn't raised in, in a cult. But it was incredibly difficult because the law and the rules are just there. And, the you know, on hindsight now, the toxicity with inside that space where you are not afforded the opportunity to just develop, where you're not afforded the opportunity to just make mistakes, because making mistakes is wrong and wrong is sinful and sinful is is hell bound um, and hell as we know is a terrifying place where one's burnt forever but never consumed um it's so it's incredibly difficult and then developing a sense of person a sense of personage in a cult at one stage that in one situation, the child's being told, you are incredibly special and Jesus loves you or the guru loves you and you are just so lucky because you are here in this glorious space and you are chosen. And then you're told you are imperfect. You are so imperfect. All you need to do is adhere to these incredibly rigid rules and then you will become, you know, who you are meant to be, which at the moment you aren't because you were born a sinner you know so there, there are these two really contrasting and conflicting messages that are being constantly uh, pushed into the child of which the bottom line is that the child's consistently being told they're not enough they're not good enough they're not able enough they are and, and, you know, depending upon how the doctrine goes, they are responsible for so much of the harm that's happening in their life or in the world. Anything that bad that happens is about their sin. Um, and that's really, that's difficult. <laughs> and that shouldn't happen. Um, and yet there's other aspects of, you know, cults are, are notorious for, removing children from their families um you know that that happens system in some cults almost systematically in order to enable um the parents to be readily available to serve the guru and do what the guru needs them to do so children are often seen as a hindrance um and they are their developmental requirements are totally disregarded um in the brethren, and this happened to me several times, children are systematically removed from their families if their families or the household is considered unclean. And, you know, this is totally contrary to state law and, and state law wherever the brethren may practice. Um, you know, so my brother got a job without asking permission. Our house was then unclean. The rest of us children had to leave because he was actually too young to be removed um, from the house. One of my brothers smoked, you know, just an experimental, I'm a teenager, what's it like mm. to smoke? You know, we were all removed. For the longest period of time that I was removed, it was for 18, over 18 months. 
Wow. Um, and, you know, I am one of five children. We were all separated. I was fortunate enough to have stayed with my sister. But my younger brother, you know, I was nine at the time. Yeah, he's seven. He is in a house with no one else and just trying to make sense of his world. And at the same time, though that is totally illegal because, you know, under state law, certainly in the UK, it's 28 days that children are allowed to be housed without um, in an alternative accommodation away from their parents without um, social services intervening. Hmm. Um, but these these behaviours that brought about these family separations, these illegal fosterings, for want of a better term, hmm. wouldn't meet any of the local authorities' thresholds for safeguarding anyway. They are purely a punitive response um, of punishment from within the organization that does several things you know it empowers the the leader this is what i can actually do look at me i can do this without any kind of consequence you all need to behave because in fact i can remove your children from you and you cannot do anything about that so there's immense power in that but there's also immense fear other families see that and that terrifies them but there's also fear for the family. If you're indoctrinated to believe that Armageddon could occur any day and you haven't seen your parent and you are actually thinking that your parent is in a sinful or unclean place, you may never, ever see them again. Um, you know, so it's, it's multi-layers of, of abusiveness. But this happens and continues to happen with Inside the Brethren and somehow it's not being addressed and that's you know a, a deeply distressing and troubling situation because how do we bring about redress for these kind of abuses hmm. um so yes yeah, growing that's... going back to your question growing yeah. up in a cult is not a healthy place for a child to be um in order for developmental social psychological and well-being reasons that's that's really interesting. I had no idea that um, that sort of thing was practiced um, in in the brethren. That's something I didn't know. So that's yeah, that's awful. Um, I, I think um, even when those sorts of extremes aren't taken, there's um, there's an inserting of the cult into family life yeah. um, in one way or another, isn't there? So you're you have to as a jehovah's witness we always had to have a family bible study which actually was a family book study it was about the book that you used whatever that was that the society produced and you'd go through that and this was a family indoctrination session essentially that led by the parents um and in a marriage they, they talk about the threefold cord you know god should be in your marriage and so there's there's always this inserting of of the cult of the group into yeah. normal family situations and and you you can never take a holiday from it you know it's always got to be uh, part of your everyday existence yeah that's that's really yeah. interesting um yeah. i've talked on this podcast about my own experience and how i felt and i think um you mentioned about not all not all individuals will react the same and i think that's absolutely right um, we know that different children have different sensitivities. We have individual differences. Um, some of those are just genetic and they may be very different to our siblings. So I think 
it's wrong to expect children to all respond in the same way. I know from my experience that I was scared all the time. You know, I always had a knot in my stomach, worried about doing this or not doing that or sitting against the Holy Spirit or, you know, whatever the thing was that I... Um, and, and the organisation was always very keen to try to get you to do more. And, of course, you know, you're, you're constantly thinking, oh, well, I should do that then, you know. Mm-hmm. And if I don't do that, is that... Um, am I, you know, not not giving my all to to Jehovah, you know? So I think these are torturous things that that yeah. children who are sensitive will go through. Deep, so deeply yeah, torturous, deeply yeah. torturous. Wondering about every act you perform, how it mm. is going to be judged by an omnipresent, so-called benign God who will actually destroy you if you, you are. Can also. Who can also read your mind, which, yeah, so which is even worse. You know, it absolutely permeates your being yes. and, and is mm. judging everything about you. Yeah, deeply, deeply terrifying. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I think we've, we've um, hopefully listeners who don't know much about cults can, can see that there are some real significant dangers and risks associated with these types of groups they they operate differently so it's it's not easy to you know say that this is the the modus operandi for every single group but i think the things that you've highlighted there power control fear um these are the these are the tools that these groups use and that is pretty universal whichever type of group it is whether that be a personal development group or a or a, a religious group or whatever it whatever it might be yeah um what what's yeah, it like uh, to leave then so uh, have, we, have we have we covered that ground or is there anything else you wanted to say about that no, that's, that sounds i think i think that is covered i i think there's mm. you know we, we've touched on the fact that witnessing abuse is incredibly terrifying and i think mm. for children growing up in those groups they are readily witnessing different types of physical and psychological yeah. abuse, yeah. which is in itself a form of abuse. Um, but what's it like to leave? It is incredibly difficult. I don't know about you, Steve. It took me about four years to leave. So by the time I was 14, I remember going to my local school counsellor. And as I said, you know, i I was fortunate. I, I went to a mainstream school, mm. and I said, "You know, I'm, I'm in the brethren, and I would really like to find a way that I could not be in the brethren. Oh, wow. I don't know how to do this." <laughs> and bless him and his ignorance. He uh, and my own ignorance, because he said, "Well, you need to go home and talk to your parents about this." Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, oops. Which, which, yeah, oops, because I did. Um, not, not a good evening meal that one. Um, but it then left me with this sense of I would really, you know, that that desire didn't go away. But there were moments when I'd almost be able to oppress it. So there'd be moments when there'd be a particularly big, particular big event or something, and. I would double down on myself and be like, right, now I can do it. I can be particularly good. I can be the best brother and sister in the world. Here I go. This is me. And it would last, you know, I don't know, half a day, 
it wouldn't last very long that sense but then there would be such disappointment in myself such um anxiety about how i was ever going to reconcile those two spaces or those two experiences of desperately wanting to leave but desperately wanting to stay if only i could be good enough and that doubling down continually having to double down on myself to be good was was just so torturous mm. um and it you know it, it made sleeping difficult it made being a brethren difficult um and yet by making those experiences certainly by being a brethren difficult i was therefore affirming that i wasn't good enough and so it became this incredibly um toxic spinning self-loathing self not being enough situation so then that went on for uh about four years until an opportunity arose that enabled me to go okay i've got to grab this and i've just got to go for it um i was as a, as a good brother and sister i was working in a printing office for a brother who i made a mistake on a business card which um he ended up grabbing one of my boob, one of my boobs and i just went no this stops now i'm resigning i'm out of here in a fortnight's time and i avoided him ever since so it was a form of sexual harassment i don't mm. consider it um it, well it was abusive and, and frightening and intimidatory but it was also something that i could grab hold of and just go with and i had to it, it was almost like by making that public declaration to him i had to fulfill it for myself as well um to have not followed through on that point would have been well it would have finished me mm. you know i yeah i don't know what the outcome would have been but thankfully it was enough motivation to push that through yeah, that's that's so good to hear that you that you did that. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it by becoming a patron. You can support the podcast for just one pound or a dollar fifty and receive a variety of Patreon benefits as a thank you. Don't forget to share the podcast, follow, like, subscribe, and rate the podcast on the podcast app you're using. A review is particularly helpful as it gets us recognised by new listeners. And finally, if you'd like to reach out to us and tell us about some court hacking you've been involved in, or you just want to say hi, you can do so by going to courthackers.com and using the contact form. We love hearing from our court hackers. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. That's quite interesting, Joy. Um, We interviewed a... um, I think it was just me, actually, that interviewed her. um, um, a lady called Min Grob, who is, um, she's a peer researcher in the field of coercive control within relationships. Um, and she gave us a kind of playbook for um, what it's like to have a partner who's coercively controlling. And one of the things, well, first of all, she talked about love bombing mm-hmm. um, when you first meet, which I think those of us in courts know what that's uh, all about. Mm-hmm. Um and then one of the things she said is quite early in the relationship, they'll do something that is pretty horrible and is something that's almost like a test to see whether you'll put up with it or not. Mm. Um, 
And it feels like in a way, whether it's done intentionally or not, your experience though, if you'd have put up with that, then that would have made you even more powerless, wouldn't it? That would have put you even deeper into this sense of powerlessness. Yeah, it would have made me powerless, certainly in that place of employment. And within the brethren, your place of employment is your place of employment. You're, you are kind of situated in in those spaces with other brethren. Yeah. So that it would have been untenable there. But it also, I think it's more deeply the psychological disappointment in myself yeah. of not following through would have been unbearably difficult. Mm. So I really admire the fact that you were in your 20s, by the sound of it, early 20s, when you were 17. So you really did. I mean, I I hung around um, till I was 30. Uh, so I, I, it took me a long time um, going through the same sorts of things that you were talking about, really wanting to believe it, wanting for it to be the truth, because uh, mm-hmm. that was much easier if, if it was the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, feeling frustrated with myself, begging God to make me believe it, going through all of that, trying to do more to prove to myself, perform to myself that I really did believe it, you know, and all of that, it took a long time. I often wish that I had made that break much, much earlier as a much younger mm-hmm. man. Um, but um, obviously you you just do what you do and, and you yeah. are where you are, but it, it it is very, very, it can take years and years. I would say my leaving took me um, 10 years, really, to, to actually make that, mm. that final decision. Yes, to actually exit. And, and, yeah. and that's part of the tension, isn't it? Is because you yeah. can leave cognitively or almost leave within your thoughts and within your yeah. worldview, but you're still physically there. And while you're physically yeah. there, you have to be physically there and so that just produces so much cognitive dissonance and mm. dissonance and and inabilities to feel free yeah yeah um and and yet yeah. there are people that get kicked out of these organizations without anonymous you know without making that mm. um decision for themselves and they they go through almost the reverse if they're successful yes. in that yeah. of having to cognitive catch up with the physicalness of their isolation yeah jehovah's witness ex jehovah's witnesses have these um these little acronyms I, I i'm sure you've come across them before so pmo is um physically in mentally out so this is when somebody is still um known as a as a jehovah's witness but but mentally they, they know it's not true uh, and they don't believe it anymore, but carry on as though they are. And then the other one is POMI, which is um, physically out, but mentally ill in rather. Mm. And this is where you've just described where you might get kicked out, I suppose, um, or even just leave because you can't keep up with the, the kind of uh, the hamster wheel that you're going around, but you still believe it somehow. You're still, mm still thinking Armageddon around the corner and that, um, you know, you're a terrible person. So the, neither of these situations are, are very pleasant, really, um, mm. but probably are part of a lot of people's exiting process. Yeah, um, I, would I, say. I, I, I would think so. I, you know, I, I, certainly it's worthy of, of deeper research because it's yeah. meaningful, I think, for counsellors and therapists and people who may come, you know, may be required to support such leaders to be 
aware of those different mm. positions and the tensions with inside them. Absolutely. Um, okay, so so leaving is difficult, um, partly because of everything we've discussed there, especially if you were raised in it. But also, I guess your your worldview has taken a hit. It's one of the um, it's one of the things we we've talked about from day one on this podcast is making sense of life after you've left. Um, so you know, up to that point, everything about your life, your opinions, your beliefs, your political views your moral views everything has been controlled by the group when you leave obviously that all changes could could you describe a little bit for our listeners what what that's like it's a combination of terror and liberation (laughs) that's a great Um, way of putting it yeah it's it's incredibly terrifying because nothing Mm. actually makes sense um Mm. i have previously kind of described it and I do this with respect towards people who are in a refugee state because that in itself is a very real um, traumatic event but in many respects leaving a cult is like that you um, put yourself in a place of danger because in fact that situation of danger even if your life may be wiped out in it is better than staying and having a long tortured life so you make an extreme decision uh, to to leave and then once you've left you then have to redefine and refine how you're meant to function in the world and though you may you know both of us spoke english but i don't think we spoke the language of those who were not in the in the cults that we were raised in so language it has to be reused and restructured um, the worldview has to be restructured. Systems within inside society have to, has to be re-understood. Um, basic life processes. How do I relate to people? How do I greet people? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? Um, what's polite? What's impolite? The, these really subtle nuances all need to be learned. And at the same time, there's a part of you going, Oh my God, what have I done? Have I, you know, have I made the ultimate sin? You know, have I, you know, am I going to be struck down by a bus? Am I going to get terrible cancer? You know, am I going to die a terrible, painful death because of these decisions? And so part of the fear that propelled you to leave is still lingering, still lingering. And at the same time, you're dealing with the complexities of this new space you find yourself in that you feel so alien from yeah yeah we we don't know the numbers um i I guess it'd be interesting to do research on on the numbers of people leaving these high control groups every year but i think we can confidently say there will be thousands upon thousands Mm -hmm. of people going through this process and they're they live amongst us (laughs) we live amongst everybody else you know and um people don't necessarily know this so this brings me to to my next point really which is how society needs to be better informed about what people like that are going through people like us what we went through but more importantly i guess what people are going through right now and how we can help and support people in those situations have you got any thoughts on that it's incredibly difficult isn't it because what's it's a twofold dilemma in some respects 
we can set up organizations that are cultic aware and sensitive to these uh, vulnerable situations people may find themselves in on leaving such organizations but how do we inform believers that these organizations are available to them mm. on one level how do we inform people that having access to these this support is actually their right that they should go for these things you know part of the cultic um mentality is you're not worthy of support or help so you know accessing help can be very difficult i one one thing that i so i think it's it's, it's a double going back to your question of you know how do we manage this i think we have to have public displays be that billboards or whatever that that says if you have left a coercive controlling relationship these are places that you can go for support and it's 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 made publicly aware but what's interesting is i actually think you that that have you left a coercive controlling group these are places you can go for support as we alluded to before people in cults don't know necessarily they're in cults so you we, we may have to be more specific about that but it takes layers of education um to address that um and yeah it, it's that education can take many forms i mean i think the archers do a fantastic job around coercive control but we need it in you know in relation to coercive controlling groups um in a, in a way that it can be presented as a policy changing practical approaches to the difficulties in leaving yeah so sorry you said the arches there are you talking about the the the, um, the radio uh, radio four about yes. five years ago yeah I'm talking about coercive yeah so that that's interesting so um it seems to me so we've we've talked about this on the podcast before we've talked to um people who are trying to influence policy it seems to me that there's um there's policy that needs to be influenced and i know that the family survival trust um have produced a document that is meant to inform um government so so maybe we talk about that as well uh, briefly but um there's there's those sorts of things and there's also the more i suppose um pop through popular culture informing people like radio plays and soap operas and movies and films we've spoken to a couple of filmmakers on this podcast talking about their experiences and um some of it is fictional but based on real life we had the movie apostasy um mm. that was really really valuable i think for, for for certainly for my community so i think that's that's really important isn't it perhaps we don't put enough store by that this is these are ways for society to understand what's happening and understanding the impact on it so it's great i think to encourage people there are many very talented artistic creative people who leave these groups who do do these sorts of things i think supporting them is really really important yes um, you know it's great to to do that no i i totally agree i mean the the there are everyone who has left has a book to be told and and that yes. that book and that story needs to be told but alongside uh, and for numerous reasons those stories need to be told but alongside that we do need um it's slowly coming in 
the, a more academic approach to inform policy. And yet that does take them um, producing evidence around the yeah. lived experience. Um, and that's yeah. difficult because a lot of people who do leave these control groups, you know, I at times dip my toe into ex-brethren forums on, online and spaces like that. I find them quite difficult to deal with. Um, for for j just myself, I find them quite triggering and they leave me feeling un unsafe. Um, and I think for lots of leavers at times, those kind of spaces can be like that. I, I think for me, the Family Survival Trust, I find um, I feel safe and confident there. But that's because it is, it's not particularly, specifically ex-brethren. It is a broader collection of representation and enables those commonalities to be explored rather than, oh, you remember Mr. Smith? Yes, well, you know, it quickly becomes a, yeah. another form of connectivity, um, but not as helpful for me as it is for others. But I guess what I was also going to say there is that I'm surprised by the amount of people that leave and then do just genuinely assume they can get on with their life. And most of them do. The amount of people who are motivated to do podcasts or to be active in their anti-cultic um, practices or to raise cultic awareness is a minimum on those thousands that leave every year. So there's, there's something around that as well about cultic leavers being aware that there is support for them. And yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, it took me 23 years um, to get around to doing anything about it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I completely get that. I think there is a feeling that you just want to get on with, you, with your life. You know, you've wasted so much of your time, of your life on that thing. You just want to kind of get on with it. Um, but, but there's still... Every now and again, there's still part of you that that harks back, and and why wouldn't it? You know, it's been a big part of your 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 life, and so you still need to kind of deal with that. Um, and if 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 people want to contribute, want to be part of that, then I think that's great. Yes. Not everybody wants to, and that's also completely fine, isn't it? Um, yeah. We, we can't um, dictate how someone leaves a cult. That, that in itself would be ridiculous. <laughs> and kind of culty, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so let's uh, let's get on to the Family Survival Trust uh, in a bit more detail because I think that's, um, that's really important. So I was very privileged to uh, attend one of your support meetings um, this week, which was really interesting and actually affected me a lot more than I expected it to, um, emotionally, I think, um, full of all sorts of different people's experiences in very different situations. Um, that's just one of the things that um, the Family Survival Trust does. So would you want to tell us a little bit more about, about what uh, the FST, I'll call it from now on, uh, does, uh, Joy, and why that's so important? Well, it, it's a very small charity, I have to say, that, you know, um, is run by all volunteers who have all had experiences of cultic organisations. Um, but we have two main focuses within our work. One is around raising awareness 
at a political level and endeavouring to bring about legislative change where cults are concerned. And we are actively trying to promote the idea that where the domestic coercive control rule is now, to have that expanded away from domestic one-on-one -on -one relationships and consider it in the context of um, groups, which would in many respects support cultic leaders, leaders, but would also, um, it would be anti-cultic leaders. It would support cultic leaders, but I think it would also shed a degree of light in other places where coercive control is being used maliciously within groups, so gangs and criminality and places like that, it would actually have an impact in those spaces too. Um, so we do that on one side of our um, work. The other is that we do one, run these monthly support group sessions for people who have been inadvertently harmed by cults, be that people who were born and raised, or people who were recruited, or people who have had loved ones recruited into cults. All of these experiences are uh, particularly injurious, often very confusing, and having the space to be able to talk about them with uh, a degree of safety and acceptance is, is seems really beneficial. And because it is that broadest perspective of injury or, or who can be injured by cults, there is also then the capacity to look more at the commonalities that happen with inside these groups. And I think that's really powerful um, and, and, a, and, a, and a helpful way to make sense of our own experiences. Yeah, that's, um, that, that's, that's great. Um, so yeah, I, I found that um, the, the support group I attended very interesting. I think the point that you made about families um, who, or family members whose relatives, children, husbands wives leave or leave them for these groups or maybe not even leave but join these groups and they become somebody different you know these are things that we haven't really addressed on this podcast that mm. i'm ashamed to say that is something that we haven't talked about and absolutely that's such a big thing isn't it um and it's something that we definitely need to address i think because it's it, it's just something that's dropped underneath my radar personally and, and yeah of course mm. that that must be absolutely heart-wrenching. Yeah, it's it's got to be so alarming yeah. to be having living your best life or, or just living your life and all of a sudden someone who is a part of that experience has is being recruited away from you mm -hmm. into a high demand group. And yeah, that's that's and and how can we support individuals going through that? Yeah. When there's such immediate, urgent loss in those experiences, who understands that kind of ambivalent grief or the rage, the sorrow, yeah. the concern, you know, the concophony of negative emotions that can be associated with that? It's huge. And yet that's, it, it encapsulates what the word family is doing in the name of our title you know the name of our charity it, it is about ultimately it's how we started and, and so we continue to um try and support people going through those incredibly difficult experiences 
which we say I'll take leave is there's limited support for us in society. I think there's even less support for individuals going through that. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it's it's quite strange actually because as a, as a Jehovah's Witness, um, we were very evangelical, as as you know. Um, so we would be calling on people, and um, every now and again, you know, some some nice old lady would let us in and give us a cup of tea, and uh, we'd we'd try to get a witness in, um, as they say. Um, and you know, sometimes a, a relative or a neighbour would would see, and they'd pop round just to make sure that the the older person was okay. And they'd look at us in with great suspicion. Mm. Um, and I'd feel like, oh, what's the matter with them? You know, we're not doing any harm. And um, it's really strange because, of course, I I understand now totally that concern that family members or neighbours would have when they see two Jehovah's Witnesses going into somebody's house and um, mm. trying to convert them, trying to change their their beliefs. So, yeah, it's very strange how perceptions are very different when you're, you know, when the shoe is on another another foot, really. Mm. Yeah. Um, so the Family Survival Trust is the charity that I've chosen for for me to support or for the, the, the ride to support my uh, Le Jog, Land's End to John O'Groats, which is happening in September. Um, we have a charity page, Just Giving charity page, which we'll put the link on the, the show notes. So if you want to support that ride, um, you can contribute to, to my Just Giving page. Or if you don't want to support the ride, but you just want to support the Family Survival Trust, you can go directly to the Family Survival Trust um just giving page two so obviously i'd like it if you support the ride because it just makes me feel better uh but you know the main thing is that we support uh this charity uh yeah i think it's a really good cause i'm really proud to uh to be raising money for the charity so there's plenty of time i don't do it until september um so i'll keep banging on about it but um but yeah i think it's a really important thing uh the more we can make this sort of thing visible and uh, make people aware of it i think the better cool well um is there anything that we've missed joy anything you want to, to say before we go no except for a huge um thank you to you for your time giving me the space to do this you're welcome and and to your legs as they do lens <laughs> into john o'groats you know it's deeply appreciated all those efforts so thank you very much well um i've started training already so um i've got a lot of miles to get through um and a lot of weight to lose so uh, that that starts now so uh, yeah um joy thank you so much for joining us today i've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed talking to you thank you joy cranham from the family survival trust thanks steve good luck cult hackers is an evil sheep production 